Just turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8. If you've been following the sermon schedule or you looked in the bulletin this morning, then you can see that we'll be in Exodus 8 this morning. And that the title of the sermon is Frogs and Flies. But let me just encourage you to pay more attention to the text of Scripture that we're going to study rather than the title of the sermon because we're not going to be talking about frogs and flies. We're going to be talking about frogs and gnats. Flies are next week. So the moral of the story is the Scriptures are inspired. My sermon titles are not. Okay. Well, as we continue to think about God's power being displayed among the Egyptians... Let's try to think a little bit about what God is doing. So let me ask you a question. What does it take for you to wake up in the morning? Maybe it is the sound of your alarm or the sound of screaming children. Or maybe uh, you get up out of bed, but you're still not awake, and so you need to have coffee in you in order for you to, to be awake. What about if there were an emergency in the middle of the night? What would it take to wake you? What would someone in your house need to do in order to get you fully alert so that you could make decisions? Sometimes people can be woken up by simply being shaken or lights being turned on or loud noises. But perhaps in extreme cases, people will not wake up unless they have water thrown on their face. But I would suggest to you that in every case, when you are in a deep sleep, what you need in order to come to a place of relative alertness is a feeling of uncomfortableness. And I think that's what God is doing here to Pharaoh. It's as if Pharaoh is in a deep sleep spiritually and God is moving him out of of a position of comfort to a place where he has no choice but to recognize reality for what it is. That he is not God. The gods that he serves are not God. They're not the true and living God. But God... The God of the universe is. Sadly for Pharaoh, he will apparently die as an unbeliever. But God is putting him into a place where he is uncomfortable so that he recognizes the truth. But I wonder if you've ever considered that God might allow you to feel uncomfortable at times, and perhaps severely so, so that you will wake up to reality. You may think that God is cruel in allowing trials to come into your life if He's doing it just to wake you up. But maybe it would be helpful if you thought of it this way. Suppose there were a fire in your house and you were in a deep sleep. What would you think of a family member who thought, you know, they look like they're having a very peaceful sleep right now and I do not want to wake them. Right? We would think them fools. And so the same thing is true about God. When God sees us in a place of great spiritual danger... He is no fool. And He's going to use whatever means are necessary to wake us up in order for us to avoid a greater danger. And so that means that He often brings into our lives periods of uncomfortableness. And sometimes those periods last for a very long time. And if we think about this principle in terms of the history of Israel, their 400 years in Egypt was God doing exactly that that He was allowing them to suffer for a period of time so that they would wake up to reality and recognize that God is God. And that that they had put their trust, they should have put their trust in Him. 
And the series of plagues here that we are studying will culminate in a spectacular miracle at the Red Sea. And Israel will come once again into a place where they can trust God fully. And God is good in allowing trials to come into our lives. You recognize that God doesn't always bring trials in order to wake us up. Sometimes it's just to strengthen our faith. Sometimes it's just to magnify His glory. But many times He does it to wake us up, like I think He's doing here to Israel and to Pharaoh. Let me read our passage for us this morning, beginning in chapter 8 and verse 1. Listen to the Word of God. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, Behold, I will smite your whole territory with frogs. The Nile will swarm with frogs, which will come up and go into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and on your people and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. So the frogs will come up on you and your people and all your servants. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the streams, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. The magicians did the same with their secret arts, making frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may remove the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go, so that they may sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, The honor is yours to tell me. When shall I entreat for you and your servants and your people? that the frogs be destroyed from you and your houses, that they may be left only in the Nile. Then he said, Tomorrow. So he said, May it be, according to your word, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs will depart from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They will be left only in the Nile. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord concerning the frogs which he had inflicted upon Pharaoh. The Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses, the courts, and the fields. So they piled them in heaps, and the land became foul. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth, that it may become gnats through all the land of Egypt. They did so, and Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff, and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats through all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. We continue to see that everything works out according to God's plans. Everything works out exactly as God plans it. Last week we saw God's supreme power over Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt and the magicians. Before bringing the first plague, God gave a warning shot to Pharaoh by showing his supreme power with the the staff being turned into a snake. Aaron's snake swallowed up the magician's snake. And then the plagues began. The first plague was the plague of the water turned to blood. There Aaron stretched his staff out over the water and the water turned into blood. The magicians were able to duplicate the miracle, but they could not reverse it. 
So again, we see God's supreme power over Pharaoh and over the gods of Egypt and over the magicians. And this week we'll see that theme continue as God continues to show His power and His supreme power through His mighty acts of judgment on the people of Egypt. And we will do, we will do this by looking at two more plagues, two more miracles. The first, in verses 1-15, through 15, God shows His supreme power through the plague of the frogs. God shows His supreme power through the plague of the frogs. The warning is given in verses 1-4. through 4. By the time that the warning of, for the second plague comes, the effects of the first warning had worn off, or at least it had been reversed. Look at chapter 7, verse 25. Seven days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile, and implied in that is the idea that the, the water had come back after the seventh day. So now the effects of that first plague are gone, and now Moses and Aaron stand again before Pharaoh. And they tell him the demands of God. Let God's people go. And if you won't agree, then this plague is going to come on you. So here's your opportunity. Here's your chance to get out from underneath this plague. Notice how, uh, notice the consequence if Pharaoh refuses, verse 2. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite your whole territory with frogs. The land is going to be filled with frogs. This is, I believe, a direct attack of God on the gods of Egypt. The sound of frogs was actually a lovely sound to the Egyptians. It meant that the Nile had come down from its flood stage and that there were several pools of water that had formed and that's where the frogs would congregate. It meant that it was, it was, it was time for harvest. It meant that, that the harvest was going to be good this season. And as a result, the Egyptians loved the sound of frogs. In fact, they even deified the frogs. They made a, a, a goddess called Heg, who was a woman with a frog's head. And they worshipped this god, this frog god. And so in bringing about this plague, these frogs that were once loved would now be despised and loathed by the people of Egypt. And God, I think, is making a direct attack on the gods of Egypt. Just like last week when we saw the the Nile is one of the gods that they worship. They worship the Nile as if it was the source of their life. The scope of this plague is seen in verse 3. The Nile will swarm with frogs which will come up and go into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and on your people and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. In other words, everywhere. Now when we think of this, we should not think of you know, perhaps some children's book illustrations where the frogs kind of pop out of a dresser and kind of mildly amused by it. Uh, rather, you should th- think more like Alfred Hitchcock movie, the Alfred Hitchcock movie, The Birds, where they are everywhere and they are tormenting you. That's what these frogs would be like. It, they would be everywhere in your house. This, this plague would originate in the Nile but its effects would extend beyond the Nile. It would extend into the people's houses and in their beds. This was a warning to show Pharaoh that, that uh, he could get away from this. He could avoid all sorts of dif- discomfort on himself and on all the people. As far as historians know, Egyptians did not wear shoes in their house. And so to walk through their homes, it would be difficult to avoid a frog. And when they rolled over in in their beds, frogs would be there. Now keep in mind that they didn't have 
raised beds like we do with mattresses on them, they had the same thing that most people have in the, in the world, and that is just a simple mat on the floor. In addition to that, these frogs would be in places that would normally be clean. That's why the end of the verse, verse 3, says, and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls, places where food would normally be prepared, is where they would also find frogs. Listen to how one commentator describes what this plague would be like, Terry Rimmer. He says, like a blanket of filth, the slimy, wet monstrosities covered the land until men sickened at the continued squashing crunch of the ghastly pavement they were forced to walk upon. If a man's feet slipped on the greasy mass of their crushed bodies, he fell into indescribably offensive mass of putrid uncleanness. And when he sought water to cleanse himself, the water was so solid with frogs that he got no cleansing there. If you think about it, this plague was much more devastating than the first plague. The first plague would have affected a lot of people. But did you ever consider that it didn't affect Pharaoh? Notice how Pharaoh responds in chapter 7 and verse 23 to this first plague, the plague of the water being turned to blood. Then Pharaoh turned and went into his house with no concern even for this. As the king, how would he get his water? Does he have to go to the Nile? Does he have to go to some well to get his water? No, how would he get his water? Someone would bring it to him. Okay, so that this plague, yes, there would probably be some complaints from people. Listen, this is really hard for us to get water. But it really didn't affect Pharaoh, did it? This plague, however, is going to affect Pharaoh because it's going to be in your house and in your bed and on your servants and on your people. This is much severer. And I think these plagues are escalating in their severity. That's why you come to the end, which is the tenth plague, with the plague of death. It seems to be that that God is kind of easing him into these severe plagues starting to see how powerful this God really is, our God, the God of Israel. So the warning is given to Pharaoh, and he has the opportunity to turn away. He has the opportunity to have these frogs turned away. And yet he he refuses. The miracle is given in verses 5 and 6. The Lord said to to Moses, Say to Aaron, "Stretch uh, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the streams, over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So verse 6 tells us that he did, and they covered the land of Egypt. This plague would have been much more difficult to explain away. Remember last week we saw that, that there were times in which the, the banks of the Nile would have some of its red dirt mix in with the water, and so perhaps the Egyptians could have said, well, this is really just, um, just a, kind of an unusual stage, and, and it wasn't really their God. But this one would be hard to explain away. Because they didn't just come up from the Nile, but they actually covered the entire land of Egypt. And they weren't just a few. Remember, when they die, we're going to see in verse 14, that they pile them up in heaps. Huge piles full of dead frogs. And we know that this plague was devastating because of what Pharaoh does in verse 8. Skip down to verse 8. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that He removed the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go. This is amazing, that Pharaoh is asking for relief. Pharaoh effectively is coming to Moses and Aaron with his tail between his legs. 
admitting in some, some way a sign of weakness. You remember, as, I, as we just looked at in chapter 7, his response to the first plague was, doesn't bother me. Turns around goes back to his palace, unconcerned. But this one, he is clearly concerned. He actually calls for Moses and Aaron and says, come back, get rid of these frogs. This request by Pharaoh shows us that he understood that while the magicians could duplicate the miracle, they could not reverse it. Notice verse 7, the magicians did the same with their secret arts, making frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So they could duplicate it. Apparently they were able to bring up more frogs from other water sources, but they could not reverse the plague of the frogs. And that's why Pharaoh doesn't go back to his magicians and say, hey, can you guys get rid of these frogs? Instead of duplicating it, can you get rid of it? He doesn't go to them because he knows that they have no power really. Their power is limited in comparison to the power of God. Pharaoh negotiates with Moses at the end of verse 8. He says, if you remove these frogs, if you get God to remove these frogs, I will let the people go as if they belong to Him. See how Pharaoh's still holding on to his power a little bit, but he's also willing to release them if Moses will do this. So, God allows for it in verses 9-10, through 10, but before that, God does something here that I think is very genius, and that is He has Moses ask for a specific time when to have the frogs removed. Look at verse 9. Moses said to Pharaoh, The honor is yours to tell me. When shall I entreat for you and your servants and your people that the frogs be destroyed from you and your houses that they may be left only in the Nile? So when should I do this? What was Moses doing here? He was, in a sense, giving the power back to Pharaoh, but actually he was doing something very important. And that is, he was showing Pharaoh that the reversal of this plague, the removal of these frogs, could only come from God and could not be explained any other way. You see, if, if they would have been removed over a shorter period of time or, or at a different time than Pharaoh requested, then Pharaoh could explain it away and say, well, maybe that wasn't the God of Israel. But when Pharaoh suggests a time, he says tomorrow, and then God removes the frogs tomorrow, Pharaoh has nothing left but to believe that it came from God. It was not a natural phenomenon that these frogs died. This was not a result of the gods of Egypt coming to act on his behalf, but rather that God was really at work. And he had to swallow, Pharaoh had to swallow his pride and recognize that only the God of Israel could could remove these frogs. Well, God responds to Moses in order to show his supremacy to Pharaoh at the second part of verse 10 through the end of verse 13. So after Pharaoh asks in verse 10, notice, so he said, this is Moses talking in verse 10, may it be according to your word, Pharaoh, that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. You see, you see how that's connected to the timing of this removal? I'm going to have it happen. I'm going to entreat God that He remove these frogs as you say, so that you will know that it's, there is no one like the Lord our God. And that's exactly what God does. Moses apparently leaves right from the presence of Pharaoh to go into the presence of God 
and he takes time to pray and entreat the Lord, to ask of the Lord to have these frogs removed. And to ask him to remove these frogs on a specific day. Moses teaches us something about the power of prayer. Moses could have assumed that, you know, maybe like the Nile, that eventually it'll go back, the, the, the plague will be reversed. So Moses could have assumed that eventually the frogs will go away. But instead, he prayed. He asked specifically of God that he would work according to what Pharaoh had asked. It seems that Moses didn't offer up a quick prayer, hey, God, make this happen tomorrow, but instead he took a period of time and pled with God that so that Pharaoh will know that you are God and, and only you remove these frogs from, from the land. So in verse 13, the Lord did according to the word of Moses and the frogs died out of the houses, the courts, and the fields. To bring about a plague is one thing, but to reverse it is another. And only God has power to do that. So He stops the plague. And the result is that they pile up these frogs in in heaps. Verse 14. Pharaoh must have been overwhelmed by complaints from the people as the frogs were everywhere in the land. And they certainly must have questioned His judgment and authority. Now the frogs finally die. And... And effectively, Pharaoh has been brought down, I think, in the not, as far as a level of, of reliability with regard to the people of Egypt. Can we really trust this man? That he's allowing these things to happen to us? That he can't, he can't call on the gods of Egypt? He can't do it himself to reverse these things? Certainly, this must have been extremely difficult for Pharaoh and his leadership. Notice his response in verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not listen to them, that is, to let the people go, as the Lord had said. While Pharaoh did, in a veiled way, admit that God was powerful to remove this plague by coming to Moses and Aaron, he would not admit that God, the God of Israel, was more powerful than his gods and more powerful than he. And so he retained possession of the people of Israel. But notice at the end of verse 15 again, as the Lord had said. Everything that happens in the universe happens according to God's plan. It happens according to what he demands. And so it's not a surprise to God that Pharaoh hardens his heart. That's why all throughout this time, Pharaoh continues to harden his heart, but God is accomplishing what he wants. God is accomplishing good through the evil that comes upon Egypt. Second thing we need to see, first we see God shows the supreme power through the plague of the flies. Secondly, God shows His supreme power through the plague of the gnats. Verses 16 to 19, the plague of the gnats. Now it's interesting that in this this third plague, there is no warning. The first and second plague, there were warnings. And Apparently, all the plagues will have warnings except for the third, the sixth, and the ninth plagues, the boils and the darkness. They just come upon the people. God says, just do it. And uh, so Pharaoh, in this case, doesn't have an opportunity to, to stay free from the effects of this plague. God just brings it about without a warning. The plague miracles is shown for us in verse 17. They did so as God had told them. And Aaron 
stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats through all the land of Egypt. So no sooner did the plague of the frogs end, but the plague of the gnats began. The word that is translated gnats or gnat in in the uh, in our English translation comes from a Hebrew word that can refer to gnats or mosquitoes or really any two-winged biting insects. In fact, if you think about it, mosquitoes are from the gnat family and are common around the world, especially in humid areas like where they would be, near the Nile River. And so very likely this is not actually gnats, but, but probably more specifically mosquitoes. And as you know, mosquitoes don't make good pets. No one likes mosquitoes. They are relentlessly pesky. I remember a time when I was at summer camp and we were playing hide-and-seek in the woods and I decided it would be a good idea to hide in a pile of leaves. And uh, the leaves were wet and so it made it especially nice for the bugs to come in. And uh, when I came out, my face was all eaten up by these pesky mosquitoes and you can imagine the, the torment there And as you hear this story, you can relate to the nastiness of these creatures. And you can also give thanks for a nice long winter like we've had because we haven't had any mosquitoes or any other flies or ants or anything like that. You have to love that part of winter. And so as these gnats, these mosquitoes, are coming on the people of Egypt, you must have been able to hear the groans of people for miles because they could not get away from them. And... uh, Amazingly, in verses 18 and 19, we see the magicians try to duplicate. Why would you want to duplicate? Of all the plagues, why would you want to duplicate this one? Verse 18, the magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats, but they could not. So their gnats were so there were gnats on beast, man and beast. So the magicians have been successful in the first two plagues and in the warning shot that was given the staff turned into a snake. They were able to duplicate those miracles and I suggested those were legitimate miracles that they had uh, used their secret arts that somehow Satan has power to perform miracles and he causes his people often to be able to do the same. Obviously all of that is under the control of God but here this one was unable to be duplicated and that shows us that their power is limited. Their power is not as strong as God. They could replicate the miracles before, but really their power was not that great because they couldn't couldn't reverse those things. When their staffs were thrown down into snakes, their snakes were eaten up by by Aaron's staff. And they couldn't reverse the blood or the frogs. Here, we see their limited power even more because they can't even reproduce the miracle. They can't even replicate it. Notice their assessment in verse 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. Now they could have been acknowledging what Moses had been stating all along, that there is only one God. Or they could be saying, This is the finger of a God. Because the the word that's translated as God here comes from a Hebrew word that is really can be more generic. It can be referring to a false god as well. As if they were saying, this is too big for us. But I tend to think that they're actually acknowledging the true and living God here. That we can't duplicate this miracle and there's only one who can. This comes from the the God. The God of Israel. How frustrating for the magicians. 
must this have been? It must be what the prophets of Baal were thinking on top of Mount Carmel after cutting themselves and for hours calling on their gods. And then to be decisively humiliated by Elijah's God, they must have had to admit that this was the finger of God. And that's exactly what happens here. They acknowledge that this is the God of Israel and there is nothing that we can do. We can't explain this away, Pharaoh. This is not us. This is not our gods that are at work. This is the God of Israel. Notice the response of Pharaoh again. At the end of verse 19. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Now, whether this plague was reversed or not, scholars differ. Some believe that this actually continued on all the way till the end. Uh, Maybe it did. It became a way of life for the people. But more likely, this stopped without Moses recording it. And then God simply moved on to the next one. But the text doesn't really tell us specifically. Let me leave you with two points of application this morning. Number one, clear evidence doesn't guarantee belief in God. Clear evidence doesn't guarantee belief in God. People defiantly reject the existence of God even when they have clear evidence to the contrary. That is, they have clear evidence to show that God does exist. They still reject Him. For for Pharaoh, it should have been crystal clear that God existed and that He is worthy to be worshipped by Pharaoh. But yet, he still rejects Him still rejects God and His desires for Him. So let me give you two encouragements that go along with this truth. First, don't be surprised when people reject God even when they have clear evidence. Don't be surprised when people reject God. Have you seen that? Have you experienced that? Where you have seen God's hand at work in a person's life or where a clear gospel presentation has been given to them and you're thinking, how can they not get it? Don't be surprised by that because people often reject God even when they have clear evidence. And then secondly, don't stop telling them about the Gospel. Yes, their foolish hearts may be darkened, but the only way that the light of God is going to shine into their hearts is if they receive the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And how can they call on the One in whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in the One whom in whom they have not heard. You see, we have to keep giving them the gospel. We have to keep pointing them back to the truth, back to reality. Their spiritual eyes may be blinded. It may be that they're in a deep spiritual sleep. And God perhaps might be using the circumstances of life to shake them, to make them feel uncomfortable for a time in order for them to see the light of the gospel. And that's the most loving thing that God can do to them. It's the most loving thing that we can do to them. Continually point them to the truth. Clear evidence doesn't guarantee belief in God. Number two, Satan is the most powerful creature in the universe. Satan is the most powerful creature in the universe. Now, there's one key word that you must understand in that statement, and that is creature, right? Satan is a created being. And he, his power pales in comparison to Almighty God, the Creator. He is the most powerful creature in the universe, but his power is limited. Turn to Revelation chapter 12. 
Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation 12, we have an explanation of the events during the tribulation period which will come on the earth when the Antichrist will rule and where Satan's power will be at its pinnacle. It will be an unprecedented time of Satan being able to display his power, including the ability to be able to perform miracles that the Antichrist will be able to spew fire from his mouth. He'll be able to call fire down from heaven. He will even be able to destroy the two witnesses who had been on the earth for the first three and a half years of the tribulation. And he will be able to to raise himself from the dead, obviously through the power of Satan. And so his power, the Antichrist, Satan's power working through the Antichrist and the false prophet is really unprecedented in human history when it gets to the time of the tribulation. When the Antichrist takes his rule, he will have the greatest earthly authority that has ever been seen in the history of the earth. And that is that he will have political authority. He will be over all the kings of the earth. He will have economic authority. He will require everyone to get the mark of the beast. And if they don't have it, they cannot buy or sell anything. And he will also have religious authority. Everyone will be forced into this one world religion to serve him and him alone. He will set himself up at the midpoint of the tribulation and exalt himself as God, as if he were the true and living God. But what we learn in this great passage in Revelation 12 is that his power is limited. His power is not supreme. He is only a creature, and his power is only going to last for a period of time. Look at verse 5. This woman talked about in verses 1 through 4 gives birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations. Okay, so this is speaking of Israel giving birth to Christ, who is rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. So that period of time on the Jewish calendar is exactly three and a half months, three and a half years, excuse me. So that's the second half of the tribulation. But God's going to protect them for this period of time. So this children, the children of Israel effectively, are these Jews who go to the mountains and flee there, and they're protected. So here's the first thing we need to understand about Satan's power as it's seen through the Antichrist. It is limited in time. It only lasts for these 1,260 days. The second thing we need to see is that Satan's power as it's displayed through the Antichrist is limited in its ability. Notice verse 5 again. And she gave birth to a son. Um, I'm sorry, verse verse 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God, and there she would be nourished. So while the Antichrist wants to destroy these who are resisting his rule, they are being protected by God. Look down to verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, that's speaking of Satan, he persecuted the woman, that is Israel, who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time. Same, also talking about the three and a half year period. From the presence of the serpent 
And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. So here you have this picture of the Antichrist, or actually the dragon, Satan, pouring out this flood towards the wilderness where all these Jews are hiding out. Notice what happens in verse uh, 16. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This, this, this power that we see in chapter 12 is only limited. Notice chapter 13, verse 5. This is speaking of where the beast comes from, that is the Antichrist. There was given to him a mouth, speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months. Verse 6, And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is those who dwell in heaven. And it was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. So in verses 5-7 through seven it says, It was given to him. That is, the Antichrist is limited in his ability. Everything that he gets is really a result of God's sovereign control. God has the Antichrist on a leash. God has Satan on a leash. Satan cannot do anything that he wants. He is not unlimited in his power. And that's why we know that even the Antichrist rising to power was, was planned by God. Zechariah 11.6 says that God will raise up a shepherd that will not care for the sheep. And that's talking about the Antichrist. So here's what we know from this that every event in the entire universe is under the control of the sovereign God who rules over all. And that's why we see in this passage when these magicians try to duplicate the miracle, they cannot do it. That is the, the gnats. And, and they cannot reverse the first, the first one we looked at, the frogs, because they're limited in their ability because God limits them. God has power over all. And that's why Moses can say that Pharaoh's heart was hardened just as the Lord had said. Friends, we should not be aloof to the the work of Satan in our world, but neither should we be terrified. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Satan is the most powerful creature in the entire universe, but he's only a creature and he will be destroyed. God has promised that And do you know the way that we overcome Satan? Do you know the way that the saints during the tribulation overcame? Look at verse chapter 12 and verse 10. We hear this cry from heaven. So as these terrible events are happening on the earth, we hear this cry from heaven in verse 10. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. That's speaking of Satan, no longer able during the tribulation after the midpoint. He's no longer able to come to heaven and accuse us before God. So he's been thrown down and he accuses them before our God day and night. Verse 11, notice how they overcome. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. 
amazing that some of these people will actually die during the tribulation. And yet the text of Scripture says that they overcame. How is it they've overcome? When Satan piles up all these accusations about us before God and about God before us, he says, you're a terrible sinner. You are not worthy of God's love. You know what our response is? We don't say, look at all of my good things that I've done. See, my good things outweigh my bad things. So I'm actually not that bad of a sin- not as bad of a sinner as you think. No, instead we say, Satan, what you say about us is very true and a lot more. There are many more sins that we commit. But I don't overcome because of something that I have done. I overcome for the same reason that the tribulation saints will overcome. And that is because of the blood of the Lamb. There's nothing you can say about that, Satan. My sins have been paid for. This is how we will stand before God one day, friends. We're not going to stand on the basis of our own righteousness, are we? Because all of our righteousness in ourselves, apart from Christ, are nothing. The in Christ, they're great. And they can be used by God and we should not minimize them. But, but our works are not what save us. It is the blood of Jesus that saves us. Again, we see the main point in our passage, Exodus chapter 8. It is that God is bigger than Pharaoh. And God is bigger than the gods of Pharaoh. And God is bigger than the magicians of Pharaoh. And the God of Israel that we read about in Exodus 8 is our God. He is matchless in power. He is matchless in wisdom. And He demands and deserves our fullest trust. Father, when Satan tempts us to despair and tells us of the guilt within, upward we look and see Christ there who made an end to all our sin. It was because of His sinless life that we can be counted as free. We can be counted as just. And You, as the just God, can reconcile us to Yourselves only through the blood of Christ. Lord, You, we recognize that You would have been completely just to condemn us to an eternal hell because of our sin, because You are a holy God. But Lord, for some reason, and we don't know why, You chose to save us and to spare us from Your wrath by giving the Gospel to us, allowing us to see the glory of Jesus Christ and His life and His ministry and what what His uh, death means for us and His resurrection. Lord, help us to be reminded freshly of Your grace. To be reminded that, that it is not in us that we receive recognition by You. We only are allowed to sit at Your table because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, may we call other people to that same truth. Help them to see the glory of Jesus Christ in the Gospel. Lord, help us to live as a result of our understanding that You rule over all, that You are the God of all the universe. That Satan's power is great, but his power is limited in time and it's limited in ability. And there will come a time when when soon Jesus will crush him under his feet. We pray that that day would come quickly. 
pray in Jesus' name. Amen.